0: everyone's attention please thank you very much for coming out tonight tonight's event is in collaboration with the literature society and the atheism secularism and humanism society we've also got this being live streamed to ucl's atheism society you can also catch up with this later on if you want to go back over it on pod academy Uh, we're going to be uploading details on how to do that later on so we've got nick cohen coming to speak to us tonight he's famous for writing for The Observer and these are books, including What's Left, and You Can't Read This Book. So, hope you will enjoy the event tonight. I'm probably going to go to the pub afterwards, so, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I want to start by talking about what happened here last year to you, uh, and how that fits into wider themes of freedom of speech, and censorship, and the giving of offence. Um, because... I think we need to discuss, work out the grounds why it can be right to give offence. Why saying someone is offensive or is not showing respect is not always a bad thing to say about them. might be the best thing you can possibly say about them. Um, If you go back to what happened here last year, you had uh, Anne-Marie Waters, uh, a woman I know, a great feminist campaigner, come to address you. But because Anne-Marie... Is involved with a lot of British Muslims, left wing Muslims and ex Muslims, in the campaign against Sharia law. You had this and this stand up here uh, with a camera and start saying words to the effect of uh, if anything is said against this offensive against Prophet Muhammad, I know where you live, uh, there will be consequences. And I gather there, uh, perhaps you tell me if I'm wrong, I gather there were other confederates of his outside who were making that threat real, and the meeting was cancelled. Now, the first point I want to make, that is censorship. This book was an absolute pig to write, because one of the problems with talking about censorship is people expand the term so broadly. Censorship just means everything and anything. It means the BBC won't broadcast me, or so-and-so says I can't do this, whatever. The censorship I focus on, the censorship that matters, is censorship that hurts, is you write a novel, uh, and you get death threats, and your publishers get death threats, and bookshops get blown up. You reveal how your company is defrauding shareholders and probably defrauding the public in some way, and you get fired, and you never work in your industry again. You um, speak out, and you end up in prison. That, to me, is real sensitive. That, to me, is a hard subject to grapple with. Now, you uh, experience that in a very, very small way here in that if, you, if this had been a meeting condemning the Clegg-Cameron coalition and a young Tory had stood up and uh, started filming you um, and saying, I know where you live, you better be careful what you say about David Cameron, uh, everyone would just laughed at him. It is because ever since Salman Rushdie, you know that uh, with radical Islam uh, that people have been murdered, that artists have gone into hiding, that uh, translators have been shot dead, that um, uh, there have been riots all over the Middle East, that however incredible the threat may be in practice, it's not wholly incredible that violence repercussions could follow. So you cancel a meeting in the face of, a, at least in a small way, credible threat of violence. That is censorship. That is censorship that hurts. That is censorship based on fear. And uh, fear is, is, is the emotion that uh, censors when they matter on the censorship we want to oppose, or I'd urge you to oppose, and give you reasons to oppose, is, a, is always based on fear. Fear is always the emotion that comes up. Fear is the emotion that stops people um, writing about the same subjects again. Not, I, I, I make a joke, it's not really much of a joke really, it's, it's, just an old, it's more of a saying than a joke, about poisoners. And the old saying goes, uh, you can be a famous poisoner or a successful poisoner, but you can't be both. Because you've been famous, you've been caught. You've been tried, everyone knows about it. So poor, you weren't that good a poisoner. If you're a successful poisoner, you can't be famous because you're never caught. The same applies to sh- censorship. 99% of censorship is, is undetected. It's underwater. You never see it because people just throw down their pens. They see what happens. They see what happens to someone uh, whistleblowers who speak out in a, in a bank and they say, right, shut up. I'm not going to touch that. You know, I'm not going to touch that subject. Um, that's one example they see what happens to Ian Hirsi and Theo van Gogh and they think, hmm, let's get back off on that. That, that that is a problem incidentally, I don't know if you found it here it's, there is a great, great problem with British culture, in particular I would say Western, ar- artistic and, and intellectual culture uh, on why these things aren't discussed more uh, I don't know if you've noticed but um, uh, journalists, we always boast that we tell truth to power Uh, as if we're dissidents in some kind of revolutionary underground. Um, Artists, academics even, who knows, boast of how anti-establishment they are, of how countercultural, of how they're transgressing boundaries and shattering taboos. Well, they're not in some revolutionary underground. We're not, I'm not. But that is our pretense. So therefore we're in a culture where people are very afraid to say they're afraid. Are very afraid to say, look, you cover this subject, I'm not covering this subject. Well, I'm not covering subjects subject because I'm frightened of violence, I'm frightened of a massive libel action in English courts that could bankrupt me, and I'm frightened of losing my job. Because then the whole persona of the great radical journalist, uh, artist, academic, lies in tatters. What, you know, we only tackle safe subjects, subjects that aren't going to get us killed. Uh, and that, that is a great problem in discussing this, because when something happens to you, you're not necessarily going to get people jumping up and down. Uh, shouting about this and protesting about it as they should because to do that would expose their own uh, uh, weakness and cowardice. Now, religion clearly is, uh, across the world, exists vast sensorial powers. In Britain, you can go on about Russia, you can go on about what happened to you, you can go on about the cowardice of our journalists and artists and comedians. But if you're in Pakistan uh, and you start protesting on just normal liberal grounds, against there being a death sentence for blasphemy. Uh, you yourself was murdered, uh, You yourself can be murdered. Salman Tazir was murdered. And as his uh, daughter says, you know, after he's murdered, no-one, no politician wants to come to his funeral or to denounce the people who killed him. Uh, in many European countries, this is still um, a criminal offence to blaspheme uh, against Christianity. It might be a minor thing, but actually... Radicals in Greece at the moment are noticing there's, there's quite an interesting uh, coalition emerging between extreme ultra-reactory elements in the Greek Orthodox Church and the Golden Dawn fascist movement. They're getting on quite well, uh, too well for comfort. Um, there's what, one of the problems of discussing this in Britain is, is, or Europe is there are all kinds of violent forces in Europe. As yeah, anyone who followed the Breivik uh, massacre in, in, in Norway will tell you. But at the moment, although this might change for the reason I get to you, the only force that targets writers and comedians and novelists and intellectuals, if you like, for what they write, is radical Islam. That might change. If we were in India, we'd be far more worried, I think, about Hindu nationalism, which again targets intellectuals, targets professors, targets artists, great artists in India, uh, and targets Muslims, massacres Muslims. So, you know, it it is not just about one religion. Uh, all religions uh, have, a, have this potential in them. But that religion is one force. So I divide the first part of my book into God. Then there's the power of money, and then there's the power of the state. And I try to tie this all up, because um, by explaining these forces of help with an anecdote from... You know, these these are these are ideas, you know, the struggle between freedom, for, freedom of conscience and theocracy. The... Um, Uh, the ability of rich men to silence their critics the power of the state of animated great philosophers but in our time I don't think any philosophers have have managed to get it all into one little uh, chunk better than the creators of South Park who in 2005 had a wonderful episode called um, Trapped in the Closet in which uh, a little boy called Stan uh, is walking through South Park and he comes across a Scientology testing centre I don't know if you've seen it there used to be one on the Tottenham Court Road it's probably still there and what you do is you go in and they measure your feet and levels, I think it is, and then say, well, you need to get involved and come in and give us lots and lots and lots and lots of money. And Little Boy's feet and levels are so high the Scientologists decide he's the re- reincarnation of L. Ron Hubbard, who was a, a sex-crazed charlatan who founded this sci-fi cult in the 1950s. And Southbot have a lot of fun because if, if, you, if you join Scientology, they gradually empty your pockets and split you away from any girlfriend or parent who might tell you, you know, for goodness sake, this is just nonsense. And, you know, do that. They, this is all meant to be a great secret. But South Park ran it all about how an intergalactic evil emperor 75 million years ago called Zeno filled DC-10s. Um, perhaps he to explain to younger people in the audience that DC-10s were once the height of technology in the 1950s. So they were the most advanced plane. And when everyone Hubbard devised his religion, you know, they must have seemed very cutting-edge. Now I don't think there's any flying. And anyway, he fills with his enemies, Crashes them into the Earth's volcanoes, then nukes the volcanoes, then the souls of his dead enemies inhabit your bodies, and you must pay the Scientologists tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them exercised. At least I think that's happened. Anyway, Little Boy is announced as the reincarnation of Elrond Hubbard, and Scientologists gather on his lawn, much to his parents' uh, uh, dismay, uh, including Tom Cruise, who asks, rushes in and asks Little Boy, he says Little Boy, but um, you know, well, what do you think of my acting, Elrond? <coughs> and unfortunately Little Boy says, well, you're not as good as the guy who played Napoleon Dynamite or Leonardo DiCaprio. At which point, Tom Cruise runs into the wardrobe because he's so upset that (coughs) L. Ron Hubbard doesn't like his acting, which, of course, allows the rest of the cast to spend the rest of the show shouting, Tom Cruise, come out of the closet. Um, (coughs) And, um, anyway, in the end, the little boy decides that Scientology is a big, fat, global scam if you just have anything to do with it. And the final scene is is very interesting. It's was in-joke that, um, I doubt, one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand viewers got. Hearing little boy denounce Scientology as a big fat global scam, Tom Cruise finally comes out of the closet and says, I'm going to sue you. And the boy says, well, go ahead, sue me. And Tom Cruise says, yeah, I'm going to sue you in England. (laughs) And I don't think anyone got it, but in the end the joke was on us, because Clapped in the Closet was the one episode of South Park was never shown in England, in case Tom Cruise did sue in England for the suggestion. I'd like to say that I, I, there's no suggestion that Tom Cruise is gay, or and, uh, all the Scientologists <laughs> sued. Uh, the Scientologists, as they do all the time, a, a very eminent American journalist has just published a book called Going Clear. Uh, he's about, uh, he's on a New Yorker, he's got Pulitzer Prizes. The works will not be published in Britain because the authors, the publishers, Transworld, could not afford a libel case in Britain to defend the book. So, you know, a book that is going to be sold around the world, we will not be able to read in Britain. So, look at the power of money. Look at the state <coughs> that allows that to happen. But, I mean, particularly speaking to a secular audience, and in Queen Mary's, uh, most of all, after what you've been through, look at the motives of the religious. I want to take them. I want to take them seriously. What are their motives? What was that man thinking about when he threatened you and during this meeting? Well, it, first of all, it strikes me as quite interesting that Anne-Marie is associated with Muslim women and ex-Muslim women in a campaign against Sharia law, which is a campaign for, essentially, a campaign for women's rights. I mean, you can cut it lots and lots of ways, but that's really what it is. That's really what it's about, making sure that immigrant women and their daughters in Britain have the same rights, particularly in divorce, as everyone else. So one thing, and this is not peculiar to religion, uh, you see it in politics as well, is one thing, they want to control the faithful. I mean, one, uh, what I find um, uh, goes horribly wrong where with things like talk of clash of civilizations and all the rest of it, and culture wars, and uh, the other, to use a... You know, condemnate and the others use a phrase I hate is, is this is all wrong. <clears throat> Militants, uh, whether uh, political or religious, their first concern is to oppress their own people. So they want to stop... Uh, ideas that Scientology is a laughing stock, it's a joke, getting through to other Scientologists, and they want to show other Scientologists that if you do that, you will you will get the same punishment uh, as that. But let us ascribe a higher motive to the people who threaten you, and let us admit an emotional truth about freedom of speech and offence. Um, I, uh, I I wasn't there, but I heard about a, a religious writer at a public meeting a few months ago in London, who said he finds insults to Prophet Muhammad more wounding than insults to his own children. Now you might find that hard to understand, but I don't know uh, if there are people in this room who have ever been completely politically committed who have so hated, for instance, maybe now, so hated a Conservative government, so desperate for a Labour government to get into power, or vice versa, that they find mockery of left-wing ideas, um, uh, confident Conservative spokesmen on the radio denouncing the left, the prospect of those ideas triumphant as a psychic wound, uh, as a wound that's terrible. Even if you don't know that, not to that. You must surely have experienced moments in your private life, unless you're very, very lucky with your private life, when you have heard, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, a man you thought could be your husband or your boyfriend just dismiss you with a few callous words, or uh, a woman you thought might be interested in you um, do the same. I, I Actually, well, when I said earlier at the start of this book that you can get so lost in definitions of sensitive, it can become so broad that, you, um, that you, uh, the subject becomes unmanageable, you have to drag it down. It's for this reason, because total freedom of speech is almost unimaginable. Absolutely unimaginable. Imagine if what you would think, imagine if you said everything that came into your head. Imagine if you were a young man who dispropositioned every woman he saw straight away. No, attends at small talk. Imagine if you said that uh, the man next to you is ugly and the woman next to him smells. Imagine if you just said everything that came into your head. You'd find yourself friendless within a day. If you carried on to it, people would think you, you had a kind of madness. To understand the appeal of censorship, imagine if everyone said what they thought of you without restraint, even if it was truthful, especially if it was truthful. Humans are, are social primates. We live in our society, we we are moulded by our society and to get by in our society uh, requires a fair amount of self-censorship and outright lying which we uh, dignify with names such as tact, courtesy, uh, politeness. But they are essential. Why not? There's this great thing of this age age, to say, well, don't cause offence, show respect. What's wrong with that? And I think it's quite important that atheists and secularists come up with good reasons for saying what's wrong with that, because uh, the arguments used against us are often quite good. You don't go out of your way to offend people. Uh, you don't pick fights for no reason. You live and let live. These are not, um, these are not bad uh, injunctions. They're, they're actually quite civilised injunctions. Uh, the first thing I would like to emphasise is this very strange modern word, respect. I mean... Respect is normally something you can't demand of other people. It's what other people give to you freely. There's something gangsterish about demands for respect. I would notice as we we're in uh, Bethnal Green and Bow constituency, George Galloway actually founded a party called Respect, and uh, that at least ought to put you on your guard about all of this. For Galloway, I mean, I don't know. I've lost count. He spent his whole life going around the Middle East on on, on hands and knees, planting wet kisses on the backside of every dictator he could find, And that he calls his party respect. There's another reason why you should be very, very aware of this. Respect is not the same as toleration. That respect is the antithesis of toleration. Religious toleration is allowing people to argue freely for their beliefs or lack of beliefs without any constraint. True religious freedom, every, every, every human rights um, uh, charter in the world guarantees freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Uh, the two go together. Indeed, some people call freedom of speech a foundational right because freedom of speech is a right from which other rights flow. And you can see that very clearly in the case of religion. How can you, if you are a, a true believer in whatever religion you choose to pick, how can you convert people from other creeds, or no creeds, if you're demanded to show respect to them? You're not. If you're a Muslim uh, trying to convert to Christian, or vice versa, you are saying to them, well, actually, your religion is all wrong. The God you envisage is not the true God. Your prophet is not the true prophet. You are, in fact, showing complete lack of respect for their religion uh, to convert them to yours. How can you if you're an atheist or a secularist here at Queen Mary's or at a University College London event on there, how can you start arguing? This is all just so much nonsense. There is no God. Grow up. Look around you. Come on. Get a life. Whatever. How can you argue that? You're not respecting that person's beliefs in any way. There are, I mentioned uh, Hindu nationalism, there are states in India where uh, right-wing Hindus have taken power and they're frightened of Islam, they're frightened of Christianity. They've actually passed laws saying it is a criminal offence to seek to convert people from one religion to another. Well, that is many, many things, uh, but that is first and foremost a restriction on freedom of speech. Freedom of speech and religious toleration go together. Respect is the antithesis toleration. This was laid out quite clearly for me in one of the finest pieces of uh, prose of the Enlightenment, Uh, It was um, the Virginia Statute Statute for Religious Toleration, which was written by Thomas Jefferson in 1766. And what he was trying to do was break away from Britain. When in Britain then, we've still got the disease remnants of it, in Britain then there was a state church. You could not go to Oxford and Cambridge unless you were practising Anglican. Uh, You could not vote in elections unless, uh, if you were Catholic. Nonconformists couldn't vote. There was a state religion which, rather shamefully, we still have, and and what's called religious tests for office. You still see the redness of this ludicrous argument we're having at the moment about whether the heir to the throne can marry a Catholic. That's about the last of it. But religious tests for office. You could not get a job you were perfectly well qualified to do unless you subscribed to the Anglican Creed. And Jefferson and the, the original American revolutionaries wanted rid of all that. And they called their statute toleration, not respect, toleration. It reads like this. Be it enacted by the General Assembly that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious place or or ministry whatsoever, nor shall he be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but, my emphasis, that all men shall be free to profess and by argument maintain their opinions in matters of religion. Argument, profess. Argument is not always polite. Uh, argument, uh, by necessity sometimes, is heated. But that's what free societies are like. Free societies are robust. They're argumentative. They're noisy. And it's only then, only when you have that freedom, that you can have um, true religious freedom. The second problem I think you need to face up to is this. is There is a very creeping thing in Britain of barring topics off limits, barring topics that, that are really quite serious. John Stuart Mill, the classic definition of liber- liberalism, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, which used to be the central creed of liberals in the West. John Stuart Mill's On Liberty only allows suppression of thought and argument in very, very, specific circumstances. Uh, He was writing in the 1840s, 1850s, mid-19th century. And at that time, the poor, including the poor of the east end of London, absolutely hated corn merchants. They were like the bankers of the day, because people who were close to hunger, people who um, could still die of starvation, they were convinced that um, uh, corn merchants were hoarding the grain, pushing up the price, uh, putting out the price of bread, profiteering, blood-sucking, all of that. And radical journalists were for- forever denouncing corn merchants. And the government, Conservative opinion in Britain, had a very healthy fear of riots, uh, which you were know, pretty commonplace in 19th century England. And the more paranoid among them had seen the revolution in France, seen the Jacobins, seen the king beheaded, and they fought the same revolution come here. So there was huge pressure to suppress denunciations of corn merchants. And Mill's argument, which used to be standard liberalism, was you can only arrest a demagogue who is denouncing corn merchants if he's whipping up a mob outside the corn merchant's house. In, otherwise, in other words, you can only censor opinion when it's a direct incitement to crime. When, to use modern examples, someone's spouting anti-Jewish stuff outside the synagogue or anti-Muslim stuff outside the mosque or attacking gays outside a gay bar, in front of an angry crowd. That used to be uh, the classic definition of liberalism. Now, uh, Mill uh, Mill called this the harm principle. In other words, there is a direct harm from speech. Not a psychic wound, not, you say to a Christian conservative today, he put forward absolutely uh, conclusive arguments on gay marriage. He might hate them it might wound him. He might think that gay marriage corrupts... might corrupt his own son. That's, that is not a harm. A harm is a direct crime. A crime of violence, arson, an assault, murder. Now, that has been a place of which what philosophers uh, call the offence principle. And the offence principle has actually come from, from very good motives, like a lot of the worst things that happen. Um, uh, uh, the radicals of the 1968 generation for very good reason, hated, racism, sexism, and then gradually, it took a bit longer than that, homophobia, Uh, for very good reasons, which I share, absolutely share. And they started to develop this idea that it's not enough to say an opinion causes direct harm, is direct incitement to a crime. But it is so incredibly offensive in a society, in in our struggles to combat racism, sexism, uh, and misogyny, that we should, uh, that, that is enough to have punishments against it. So therefore, you know, you have all these laws uh, across the Western world against inciting hatred, for instance. Well, it's a rather odd thing, because it's not a crime to hate people. If it were a crime to hate people, half the country would be in prison, the other half would have to garden them, and they'd have to swap places. It's not a crime to hate people. And the danger with this uh, are twofold. Why, if inciting hatred is against um, um, against the law, why is it inciting political hatred? Virtually every dictatorship in the world says yes, of course, of course. Look at their constitutions. Look at the Chinese constitution: freedom of speech, freedom of press. There's all kinds of laws for anti-inciting anti-Chinese sentiment or anti-Soviet sentiment in the old in the old days of the Soviet Union. The real problem, uh, but the real problem that has emerged uh, with this kind of attitude against giving offence is this. Um, G.K. Cheston, who is not often an author, I quote, him being a Catholic conservative and me being a sort of left-wing atheist, but uh, G.K. Cheston kept this wonderful line about being in an argument. He says he was trying to warn people that when they're in arguments, you know, uh, you still have to respect the rules of debate, uh, otherwise you'll losing. And he said, a man who thinks any stick will do will pick up a boomerang. And that's sort of what's happened to the 1968 generation. The boomerang has whizzed back through the air and and slapped them in the chops. In that, because they were so concerned to say, for good reasons, as always, for good reasons, we want to fight racism and sexism and uh, homophobia by um, uh, banning, banning debates that aren't directly related to crime... They have no weapons against religious fundamentalists from minorities who are racist, who are sexist, who are homophobe. They've lost the power of speech on that. And what they have done in particular has let down um, people in Britain and in countries like Britain who are immigrants who want to be able to turn to liberals and want to be able to say, look, I want to break away from my traditional life. I don't want to be treated as, I, as my grandmother was treated. Surely you as liberals and leftists will help me do it. And then suddenly they're, they're in a complete mess. They don't know what to do. Now those debates about religious power and traditional power and taboos are, I would say, quite important. You know, it's all very well saying we try to be polite, we try to be inoffensive. It's the mark of a civilised man or a civilised woman. They don't go around screaming abuse at people. But arguments about politics and religion, and the power of money, are simply too important to treat with kid gloves. These are things that affect the lives of everyone on the planet. You, you can't, if you start saying these are off limits, you're handing huge power to often quite reactionary um, forces in society. To get away from religion, I, Peter, I'm, sept- I'm a sector debate. Uh, let's talk about the uh, financial crisis, which has so blighted the lives of, uh, I'm sure, some people in this room. If you, uh, when you go out to work, those of you who are students here, if you're working in a bureaucracy, a private or public sector bureaucracy, and people start leaking from the bureaucracy, and things that start appearing in the press about you, you might have uh, delight for a while. You might really enjoy it because your bosses, the people at the top of the hierarchy, uh, will be exposed. They'll be running around in the Great planet, and there's there's nothing nicer if you're at the bottom of the hierarchy and seeing people at the top of the hierarchy made to look fools in public. If it goes on, however, you might start to worry. You might start to get the same fears that a religious person has when he sees his or her religion too much. You might start to worry about the consequences. uh, uh, To a great extent, because if you're a private firm, if too much comes out, if a scandal gets too big, first of all, your rivals start to uh, prosper at your expense and eventually you could lose your job. In a, in an in a, um, uh, extreme scenario you could lose uh, the whole company could go bust. Or your Whitehall department or local government department could just be cl- closed down and the politicians would say, what the, hell? what the hell? This is just out of control. So you understand there is uh, as in um, people biting their tongues about religion there's the same Uh, emphasis on people biting their tongues at work. That is not the main reason. I think having said that the the most violent censorship in Western society, the censorship you are most likely to experience is censorship at work. You know, you can go on the radio or TV, you can go on Five Live and you can denounce the government today in the most outrageous terms. You can denounce tradition, you can denounce the police. The secret police will not start knocking on your door and pulling you away in the middle of the night. If you, if I were to do the same thing with my employers in public, you could lose your job. Very, very easily lose your job. Happens all the time. Um, but we ought to encourage it because that hierarchical system uh, has failed Western societies. We are living in the ruins of it, down the road in the city, when the banks collapsed. Don't, everyone says it came out of the blue. No, no one knew it was going to happen. This is absolute nonsense. People in the Royal Bank of Scotland knew Fred Goodwin was authoritarian, monster, who was leading the company to ruin. Um, After the crash in New York, all the trades, all these dealings and derivatives had to be approved. There was all compliance and all these nice things, all compliance. And someone, a compliance officer who was meant to warn when things were going wrong, had to sign them off. Afterwards, people said, "Well, why do you sign them off? Why the hell do you sign them off? These deals are insane. He said, if I didn't sign them off, I'll be fired. The... um, a story I most like, because it shocks me so much, was um, Boss, which is now just a complete zombie bank could be draining your taxes and your children's taxes. H-Boss, um had a, a, a risk manager. His name was Paul Moore, who uh, was Catholic, small-c Catholic conservative, had gone to Ample forth. He saw absolutely no problem with being a Christian gentleman, uh, being devout am working in banking, he saw absolutely no problem with this at all, and he goes to work for H boss and um, it 's about two thousand and four, two thousand and five, and he finds something completely insane. He finds um, uh, the staff all on commissions. The more mortgages you throw out, the more money you get. if you don 't sell mortgages to anyone, you have to wear a dunce cap and you 're humiliated, and your salary falls out he said we 're just throwing out money without without saying whether people are able to handle this or able to deal with it, you know. And I am the risk manager. So he goes to a guy called James Crosby, who's a chief of of Halifax, and says, what you are doing is incredibly risky. Just throwing out money like that is absolutely insane thing to do. And James Crosby listens to his risk manager very carefully and sacks him on the spot. Because prudent banking would lead to diminishment in his bonus, in everyone's bonus. You know, you're not meant to speak out in the hierarchy. Now, what happens to these two men is really quite interesting, it's sort a of morality tale this time. Paul goes out of the door, bursts into tears on the street, phones his wife in Yorkshire. thinks, how the hell am I going to tell her what's happened? Goes back to Yorkshire, and he is about the most senior risk manager in Britain. Not only does he not get another job in, in banking again, no headhunter even phones him up, say, could I put your name forward for a job in banking? He's broken the rules. He's broken the Immerta. He hasn't just lost one job. He's lost any other possible jobs in his area of, uh, of expertise. James Crosby, by contrast, is uh, taken by Gordon Brown, uh, and they head of the Financial Services Authority. The, job, the, the Financial Services Authority, which was actually meant to regulate... Uh, the whole city. So the man who fires his own risk manager um, <coughs> for warning of a risk is putting charge of the regulator it's meant to manage risk in the financial system. It's any wonder all our banks went bust. Uh, it doesn't stop there, for Brown and Blair decided that James Crosby is such an impressive guy they send him to Buckingham Palace to meet no lesser personage than Her Majesty the Queen who knights him on their behalf. And it's only when HBOS along with the rest of the banking system goes bust that Paul Moore finally gets a hearing and goes to Parliament and tells them what happened. So hasn't got another job in banking. Now, you could say, if you're worried about causing offence, uh, you could say, well, yes, people in companies, people in bureaucracies who worry about leaks, who worry about the motives of people who leak, which aren't always honourable or public-spirited. Often, often they're just winding people up for no reason or people following personal grudges or all the rest of this. You could say, yes, 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 you should respect the authority of the hierarchy. For the consequences of not respecting it might be lose their jobs. But after what we've been through, what Western societies have been through, I think you have to say that the hierarchical system has failed. And the consequences of not speaking out are so bad, not just for the institutions, not just for the shareholders, not just for the employees, but for the whole of society and the economy, is having to bail them out and just pay money, money, money forever, the consequences are too great. This is too serious a matter to allow censorship to take part. Interestingly, some uh, Western politicians are starting to think like that. In medicine, which ludicrously, consider, considering uh, is public health, you can get into huge trouble in the National Health Service if you whistleblow. I mean, people's careers are blighted, there's, there's their own rules of the murder among doctors, etc., now, uh, Common Health Committee is, is now putting a, a duty on people to talk. So not everything is thrown on the whistleblower who must face the threat of, pe- of punishment by himself or uh, herself. So there is a duty on people. If you see something going wrong, you have a duty to say it. It's sort of trying to break down the, the systems in which uh, the sens- uh, censorship at work exists. Now, John Script Mill, who I mentioned earlier... We all talk about rights these days. People are very, very keen on rights. Uh, Mill, uh, like a lot of the 19th century, didn't really believe in rights at all. He kept saying, well, what are they? Where do they come from? Where do they exist? Uh, He was a uh, utilitarian. He tried to prove the argument for free speech by saying, it makes a better and happier society. And he could use all kinds of arguments. Uh, Assumptions that I had when I was growing up. Uh, in the 1970s and early 80s people in the room in their 20s will now find bizarre but they were the absolute common sense of the age and Mill makes a point again and again and again uh, why should we go with conventional opinion why should we believe it's wise when we look back 100 years and we see the conventional opinion of 100 years ago was so wrong and is accepted as wrong but he tried to make an argument for human happiness because utilitarianism is a rather crude system of devising, uh, or trying to measure pleasure v pain. But, and his argument for free speech, which is essentially an argument for knowing as much as possible, for knowing things that might hurt you, for knowing things you might not want to know, but know thyself, the ancient Greek maxim is is the best. So he tried to say that Socrates dissatisfied was happier than the fool satisfied. It's better to be Socrates, knowing everything, you know, Mm -hmm. than some fool. Living in a in dream. I don't think you can prove that. I don't think you can prove that uh, on some kind of utilitarian calculus. Uh, what I think, at our best, modern societies are striving towards is not saying necessarily that knowledge will make you happy. It won't always. Uh, and so even if it does, I, I can't see any way of proving it. It is, it is asking people, it is giving people autonomy. It is allowing people to be adult, to be grown-up, to not be infantilised, to uh, not be treated as children for whom nasty words, secrets, um, uh, uh, unpleasant information needs to be hidden. That strikes me as, as, as a far more important thing to say, and not, uh, not, uh, and, and not just in your personal life either. Politics used to be paternalist. Governments used to be able to cover all kinds of things up because they might say, well, the electorate doesn't really want to know about what British troops got up to in the base in Iraq, perhaps. It would upset them. It would destroy the image of soldiers. They wanted to put forward a national myth. Now, we don't say now, when we demand the right to end that kind of censorship, that's allowed that to happen, we don't necessarily say that knowledge will make us happier might make us unhappier. Uh, On some things, as our government does, it ought to make us unhappier. But we say we are adult citizens, of a democracy. We have a right to know what is done in our name, with our money, and indeed to go back to freedom of speech being a foundational right, on which other rights exist. It's not just freedom of religion that depends on freedom of speech. Uh, Democracy depends to an extent. Because if you cannot find out what the powers in your land are doing, how can you pass an informed judgment on an election time? Now, again, that, that, that is not an argument for happiness. It's an argument for, uh, for, for just saying, we are adults now. We are grown up. Um, I, I, I made a distinction earlier between saying, well, one reason why you must oppose censorship is it's always on important subjects, on religious pressure on political power on the power of plutocracy uh, that, it, that, that it is used. But I don't even think there's a public-private... Division here. In your private life, at some time, you may, if you've been unlucky, you may have had to say to someone, "I'm really sorry, but this relationship is a disaster." I, it might be the most offensive thing that person's heard. I'm leaving, but you still say that. You don't. You don't. Uh, you don't. You don't cover it all up. Now, when I talk like this, uh, I run into you run into all kinds of problems because people mistake what a free society is. People think, if you say someone must be allowed to say something, that is the same as agreeing with that someone. Uh, the endless debates I get, I get into on this, it's not. Freedom of speech is the freedom to robustly criticise, to satirise, to mock, to go with everything you've got uh, against an idea. All you are saying, if, if, if you're against censorship, is the one thing I'm not going to do is call for the lawyers or call for the police. Okay. I'll do everything I can to, uh, to uh, uh, dissuade my listeners, other people, anyone watching, anyone reading me, anyone looking at my blog or my tweets or whatever, from believing in that argument. But I'm not going to call uh, for the cops about it, for all the cops about it. There is, there is in Britain, maybe it's getting slightly better. If you go back to the old liberal principle, it's only speech which directly incites a crime. let the police. That seems to be broken every day. I mean, I've suddenly found myself from dealing with, you know, going back to the ancient Greeks and reading Mill and Milton and Orwell to dealing with cases like I don't know if you know this one. I got very involved with in this. Um, Paul Chambers. Um, Paul is um, what is is he's a lovely guy. Uh, he was working in a motor parts. Company near Doncaster. And he had a Twitter list of friends, I think maybe 80 or 90 followers, who were basically his friends. But they interlinked with, uh, on that list was a crossover with a, 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 a nice young woman. And Paul and the woman got to know each other at a, there was a Twitter meetup, everyone on the list met up. And boy met girl, boy liked girl, and, uh, uh, and she invited him over to Belfast where she lived. To uh what for a date. What could be nicer? And um so Paul is sitting there in Yorkshire, in South Yorkshire, and the BBC News is on. Snow has closed the airport. Paul just tweets Crap, Robin Hood Airport's closed. If you don't get your shit together in a week, I'm gonna blow you sky high. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Not the greatest joke ever. But if Paul had just been in the pub with his friends, everyone would have probably wouldn't even laugh that much, isn't it? Right? Carried on, you're around. Um, but because it's on Twitter, it's a permanent record. There was a great deal of internet utopianism a few years ago that you didn't need to worry about bills of rights and freedom of speech and battles because the net, the web would set you free. There was no need for politics. Well, the web does set you free in, other ways, in, in, in some ways. In other ways, it gives the authoritarian, in both democracies and dictatorships, a power they never had before to monitor, to see things, to hear things that, in the past, you would need legions of secret policemen to find. Yeah, You wouldn't have put MI5 officers in every pub in South Yorkshire in case someone, on the off chance, may be, that, that during a snowfall someone might shout, crap, Robin Hood's airport's closed, you've got, you've got a week to get your shit together, I'm going to blow you sky high. I mean, it, it'd be impossible, economically impossible. But because it's on Twitter, a manager at Robin Hood Airport can search, Twitter search for... Uh, and he mentions Robin Hood Airport. Uh, he finds Paul's tweet, doesn't quite realise it's sort of sexual despair, he doesn't think he's going to go and see his girlfriend. He realises it's a joke, but the rules say it's got to be reported. It's it a security manager who realises it's a joke, but the rules say it's got to go to police. It goes to the police, the police arrest Paul at his workplace. His employer promptly fires him. He's then convicted under a catch-all piece of legislation, the 2003 telecommunications, act, that anything offensive can be a criminal offence. And punishment fine. Anyway, Paul gets to Belfast finally, and settles down and it's all nice. He even gets another job in Belfast. Um, but because of people like me and saying, hold on a second, the web is raising some really disturbing free speech cases now, he decides to appeal. So he goes to tell his new employers in Belfast that um, uh, he's got an appeal coming up. Now, Really, Belfast isn't the best city in the world to say bomb hoax, appeal, conviction. <laughs> so he loses another job. This man's <laughs> lost two jobs and got a criminal record for making a bad, bad joke on Twitter. Uh, he finally gets off on his f- third appeal uh, when we packed the Law Chief, Chief Justice Court with supporters. And uh, to their great credit, Alan Murray and Stephen Fry came along and just glowered a law chief justice until he let them off. But these kind of cases never happened before. If you find that too easy to think, there's a guy called Adrian Smith in Trafford in South Manchester, where I'm from. He wrote on his Facebook page, he's a very devout Christian, he wrote that he was against gay marriage. On his Facebook page. He, wasn't, he didn't denounce gay rights in offensive terms. He said, well, I'm a Christian... I don't think gays should be allowed to marry in church. This actually is the official position of the Labour Party, Conservative Party, Liberal Democrat Party, and every single political party in Britain. So this is hardly incendiary. <clears> That's all malicious colleague reporting because it's there on Facebook. His employer said, "Well, somehow, you know, you've let down the Trafford uh, Housing Action Trust." He's been demoted. He's gone from a, he's had £14,000 a year salary cut. So. For saying something on Twitter on Facebook, he had a rolling fourteen thousand pounds a year fine, going on pretty much forever. Now, in the past, people would not, you know, someone from his work, some you know, prod nosed busybody, would have to follow him to his local church and listen to him if he spoke out on the pulpit against it. Now they can just look <coughs> on Facebook. We are a very very long way away though from. <coughs> Liberal idea that the only reason you can be punished is for directly insulting a crime. This Adrian Smith chap in Manchester—he wasn't inciting a mob of born-again Christians outside uh, some gay bar on Canal Street. You know, Paul Chambers wasn't planting bombs on the runway. He wasn't even phoning the airport up with a hoax, which actually is quite rightly a criminal offence. The airport wasn't cleared. Nothing happened. You know, so people, all kinds of talk, of conversation, of writing is, is being punished. And the funny way the web, which is, uh, can't be erased, uh, uh, which is searchable, uh, makes that far easier. It's, it's far from certain to me that we will look back in 30 years and say the web was a wondrous instrument of liber- liberation it was or that allowed a new kind of authoritarianism and gave in democracies and gave dictators more power than they used to have. It's open. Of course it's open. It's a political question. It's a political question of what rights you have and are you prepared to fight for them. Finally, I just want to say this. In Britain, I was talking to someone who uh, worked for Index on Censorship. all that. He went to work for them from uh, a newspaper. And he said, well, funnily enough, I thought I was joining a left-wing cause, but actually I'm mainly defending quite reactionary people because uh, of political correctness, which is not a term I like, actually, I won't use it, but because of, of, of people worrying about uh, racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, all the rest of it. And I accept those worries are genuine because uh, I accept the struggle for... Uh, gay rights, you know, for anti racism, for women's rights are good and noble struggles that have to be fought. I mean, particularly women's rights at the moment, But And so people, say, people start, you then fall into a single, unless you say there should be laws against them, you are defending them. To me, this is just a massive loss of liberal self confidence. Yeah, because I'm called Cohen, uh, in, when, on interviews with this book, the number of times interviewers have thought, oh, I've got him here. Nick Cohen, they say would you legalise Holocaust denial? And I first point out that Holocaust denial isn't actually a crime in Britain. But I said, of course I don't want it to be a crime. You know, it's not hard to argue against some neo-Nazi or communist Islamist who wants to deny Holocaust. They are not very, very bright people. You know? I mean, it's not, like, it's not like, you know, you're up against Socrates to revive the old guy again. You know, I mean, it's, it's, not, hard. it's not hard to argue against homophobes or misogynists. If you find it hard, if you find it so difficult that you have to call for the cops, maybe you shouldn't be in debating business at all. And make way for someone who can. Thank you very much. OK, um, I think we've got a bit of time now for some questions. So, um, yeah, do you want to get started? There's something, there's something that will interest you and something that wasn't brought up. Local authorities anything to do with children at the moment. There is a veil of secrecy over things like family courts. There is a terrible uh, veil of secrecy with injunctions and legal action threatened against people who actually want to keep their own children that are are being hamstrung by social workers, by the police. It is a a conspiracy. And as an ex-counselor, I can tell you that I was at the wrong end of that one. The only thing that would save me was the fact I recorded every conversation. And if I hadn't recorded every conversation, I could well have gone to prison. As it happened, what happened is the director of children's services had to leave. Could could, could I say a point I want to make that flows on from that? Uh, I was going to say to you there's been quite a successful campaign to allow the press into family courts. But here's the problem there virtually is no press anymore. I mean, the the, the press is is dying. And I sit in the Garden Observer's office and I almost see the money hemorrhaging out of the door. The local press in particular, I don't think I'm giving away a, a secret here. Uh, L- London Hospital, up the road here, from which your medical students are uh, uh, presumably trained. Yeah? Uh, I know people who involve involved with this management. Very, very good people. It's had a hell of a time. Absolute hell of a time. Had the first PFI contract. One of the first PFI contracts. it's virtually bankrupted. And then it had one of the first NHS computer systems. This was before, before the phrase Whitehall and computer system became a national joke. And they said, they said to the managers of a the hospital, they said, OK, I want you to sack, you can sack all your clerical workers, this wonderful new system we've got, wonderful new system, will mean you never, ever need, you won't need medical secretaries and clerks. It'll all just be there. All be fine. The computer system came in, one, it's enormous cost, and two, it never worked. And the hospital is vir- virtually went bankrupt. And so the good people who run the hospital fully believe in freedom of information, perhaps unlike your colleagues in social services, fully believe in it all. They had full briefings for the press and whatever. This is a major story. London Hospital, the biggest hospitals in London, tied to bars one of the most famous hospitals in the world. Not a single journalist came <coughs> to cover their public meetings. But a great story, just sitting there. Well, that's because local papers are virtually dying out. Uh, Alan Rusbridger, the editor of the Guardian, says for the first time since the Enlightenment, we're going to have major European cities with no one, no local paper covering the council, covering you know the hospital board, covering covering anything. So this is another reason why we need to be far more concerned with censorship. It's just it's just the way the net's gone, the way the net's done it. So. I bore you for details. It's not readers. It's not that readers are going off onto other sites. We get, the Guardian Observer, we get vast numbers of readers. Beyond the dreams of predecessors. the advertising is all gone. Newspapers used to have a monopoly of classified advertising. It used to be, sorry, long, long ago, before you we were born. Uh, it used to be if you wanted anything, if you wanted a job, if you wanted a boyfriend from a lonely heart column, if you wanted a car, if you wanted anything, you would have to buy a newspaper or magazine. Now, all that, and we used to charge a fortune for it. Uh, all that classified advertising is gone. It's gone to Gumtree, it's gone to specialist websites. It is newspaper, there is no business model in the age of the net, or there doesn't seem to be any business model. Certainly for the East London Advertiser can follow They certainly can't afford to have reporters covering you, covering London Hospital, covering um, uh, Tower Ham- Hamlets Council. You know, they're getting fewer and fewer and fewer. So one reason for arguing against anyone trying to restrict information is we are going to need to start thinking very, very radically about how we replace that. Bloggers, netizen journalists, whatever they're called, they don't do it. It turns out, and trust me, if any of you have ever sat through a council meeting will understand this, you have to pay people to do it. Yeah. You have to pay young reporters to go and do it and, uh, and put the fear of God in them if they leave early to cover the story. No one else will do it. So that's why I think we need to think very, very radically like things like, at the moment, um, court cases. At the moment, the government, the private companies, some stupid rip-off, transcripts of court cases. Uh, I try to get one... For a trial, not a very big trial for, for for this book, so I thought I might get a bit of colour out of it. it might help it go along. Seven thousand pounds they asked me for, which I'm not sure this book will make <laughs> in total. Yeah, you know, um, uh, uh, you know that's, These are public court hearings. Your taxes are paying for them. They should be on the net. You know, we need to start thinking very, very radically about how information is going to get out, because. I'm not, I don't want to be uh, one of these old bores lamenting the lost world of my youth. Uh, and as you see in the Leveson inquiry, God knows there are wrong, huge things wrong with the British press. But what happens when that old media, not national press so much, but covered stories, actually got bodies on the ground and sat there and saw what was happening? You know, get whether going out to Afghanistan or going to a hospital meeting in Tower Hamlets. What happens when all that goes? I've kind of found myself very, uh, rather uncomfortable ra- raising this. I agree with you. Mm. Mostly the, the racists, the, the, the idiots, are not very bright. On the other hand, I'm not entirely sorry that, for example, football crowds are no longer allowed to use the N-word or to, 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 to misbehave in that manner. Mm. I'm not sorry that, I, that the, uh, the, some of the gutter press isn't going to publish, for whatever reason, but probably because it's banned, anti-Semitic hate, <coughs> hate, hate, hate stories. And I, uh, uh, I so find it very hard to reconcile those two feelings. Yes, intellectually, I totally agree. Let's go for it. Freedom of speech for all. But on the other hand, uh, hang on. No one ever promised you it was going to be easy, and I certainly didn't. Um, uh, if you were to go on Radio 4 tomorrow morning on today's programme and swear your head off, They'll never invite you back on again. If you would go on Radio Four and be racist, they'll never invite you back on again. Now that's not censorship. Radio Four is entitled to say who will have and who will have on. Yes, like the of, if you submit an article to the head of my newspaper and he doesn't print it, you could say that censorship. This is why I said in the widest, in the widest definition, term. You think about draw it too wide, and you go mad. A football club is perfectly entitled to say we are not going to have fuggish fans, you know, throwing bananas at our black players and uh, making monkey chants. It's entitled to say that. That is not censorship. That is society, civil society, operating the way it wants to operate. You know? This university is not... I don't know, it doesn't have to give a job to some race theorist, uh, racial biologist race theorist who is an intellectual charlatan, and a crank. That's not sensitive. It's just the university deciding its own policies. There are a lot of things that people think of as sensitive that aren't really. My problem is with uh, law. My problem was with terrorist violence against writers. Uh, my problem was, it, particularly in Britain, was the overweening power of money. Because I talked to, talk to you uh, about the banks, for instance. Why the hell was there virtually nothing in the British press or the American press warning people we're about to have the biggest financial crisis since 1929? Quite a story to miss, I would say. There are all kinds of reasons. One is, what I mentioned, journalism is collapsing. The other is, in a long bubble, people just start to think the free is normal. I and mean, people predicted a crash... I've been predicting a crash in the British housing market since 1999. It still hasn't happened in London. I'm always wondering, I I worry I might meet someone uh, who who didn't buy a house in 1999 and now wants to kill me. But you you, you keep going on saying the system is unsustainable. You can't keep doing that. When when the editor keeps saying, look, all these people making money, all these guys in the city, rich, 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 rich. There's that. But a big reason in Britain, a reason in Britain thats underappreciated, is under-appreciated, is... You start investigating finance in London and you run into very expensive lawyers very quickly and your own lawyers start punishing you. Can't write about something else. Can't write about Kylie Renneau's bottom or something. Do something else. Get away from this. I mean, I'm, I had this a few weeks ago, trying to write about Russian mafia launching a libel case. And my lawyers were all over me. So one reason for that is our libel laws and lack of public interest defence. Now, to go back to your point, though, you might... Welcome the fact that, and sport, incidentally, is quite interesting. It is, it is about the most anti racist part of society in a way, um, because so many black and Asian athletes have come through. Uh, it's quite interesting. You might, uh, far less so, incidentally, than, than liberal institutions who sneer at football <coughs> clubs sometimes. You might welcome the fact that, say, West Ham here, which used to be pretty National Front supporters, now bans taunting of black players and throws them out of the ground and cancels their season tickets together. Are you happy about this though? I forget the name and I forget the player. There was on, a bolt Black Bolton One with Patrick Patrice Lombarda. No, no, no. yeah. Has collapses on the pitch. And some drunken student in Cardiff starts tweeting about it. Horrible racist stuff. He's arrested He's charged. He's sent to prison. He's um, uh, and thrown out of his university. But here's what disturbs me about this: this pissed student in Cardiff, by the end of the, even, the evening, had thousands and thousands of people condemning him. Black, white, brown didn't matter. Actually by the end of his tweets he was just oh god I'm so sorry I was pissed I shouldn't have said that I'm just a Spurs fan or whatever it was I hate you know blah 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 and you yeah. the danger the danger of it is the danger it all is if you're is if you're not very careful with all of this you, you display a massive lack of confidence in, in, in your fellow citizens society has its own mandates yeah. so, British society could rubbish the drunk in Cardiff. On its own, didn't need the law, and I often uh, look at France, where the laws on freedom of speech are far more stringent than Britain. Um, uh, Holocaust denial is illegal in France. There's endless proposals to deny the Armenian genocide in France. To make it law. To make it law in France. There's the privacy laws are stunning. Francois Mitterrand could have a second family. Madame Mitterrand knew nothing about. Uh, a mistress with children who only met at his funeral. and The press, who knew all about it, never raised it because the privacy laws are so strong in France. Is France a happier country than Britain? Well, I would say one way of judging it is no. In the last French election, the uh, uh, Front National got about 18-19% of the vote. Now, they're not a Nazi party or even a neo-Nazi party. But you sure as hell know where their roots are. They get 18% of the vote. Melanchon and the left get about 13% of the vote. Well, you know, he that is that was essentially the remnants of the French Communist Party. The French Communist Party went some, along with some of the greatest crimes in human history without a squeak of protest about it. Another thinking tradition. So you're getting close to a third of the vote in the French presidential election, going to parties with... I, as I get, I'm careful not to exaggerate their roots in fascism or Stalinism now one reason that happens in France is it is very easy for your friends with all these laws with all these secrets with a press that is so polite no one ever reads it um, uh, um, it's quite easy to believe the official version is just a lie the received history you get, the received contemporary history you get is a fraud. Because, and people who try to speak out, they're sent to prison, they run into all these laws, blah, 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 blah. And therefore you go along with extreme left or extreme right-wing conspiracy theories. This is quite, I just think it's quite dangerous. I think I, I think I would like to be able to take on the BNP or the English Defence League. And when they say to me, or indeed Islamist groups as well, I don't make much distinction between them. And when they say to me, say to me, "Oh, well, we're not allowed to say anything." I say, "You can say what you bloody well want in this country, and I can say what I bloody well want in reply." I think it's better that way. Look, it's morally, I think, tactically as well. Okay, um, I think we're going to have to leave it there. So, um, can we have a round of applause for Nick Culling. Okay. Oh, then no, the book's on sale. Um, know, um, how much is it? Oh, wait, next nothing. Next <laughs>